What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Real Bodybuilding Podcast. This is episode number 90, and I'm here with Dr. Brad Schoenfeld, PhD in exercise science, and he's going to help us learn a little bit more about what we're doing wrong in our bodybuilding careers. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I wanted to get you on because there is a lot of bro science out there, and I follow you on Instagram, and I notice you commenting on some of it sometimes, and you put up a lot of good studies and things like that, so... I thought I'd get you on to kind of clear up some of the myths of bodybuilding in the bodybuilding world. That's what I do. So I'm looking forward to it. All right. So I want to get started with some of the basics. And one of the things that's always been a question that has arisen is protein and the amounts of protein and how much people should get in. Uh, what is too much? What is enough per meal? Those kind of things. So I guess we'll start there for is it different for a natural lifter versus an enhanced lifter? Um, and does it vary in uh, whether somebody is a advanced lifter or a beginner? Yeah, those are great questions. So I'll take the second question first for a natural lifters. Uh, it's actually interesting that some studies show that you actually need somewhat less protein uh, per day as you get more experience with resistance training. You think the opposite but there is at least some evidence that your body gets more efficient at being able to use the proteins that you're taking in for building muscle. Uh, I, I still am not totally sold on some of that evidence. And I would say probably doesn't make that much of a difference, but I, I would also say it certainly wouldn't make you more needing, uh, you wouldn't need more protein for more advanced. However, you might need more. And I actually, we published a, a paper fairly recently on this if you are a hardcore bodybuilder and uh, you're doing, especially with high volumes where there's a lot of turnover, uh, at least hypothetically, you mm. might need a somewhat higher protein. Uh, the general consensus is you need somewhere between 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram per mm. day, which comes out to a little around a pound per, uh, if you're in, in America, yeah. uh, roughly one pound gram per pound of uh, lean body mass, of lean weight, really. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, if you're asking about now natties versus enhanced, that's never been well studied, but it just makes sense. And from some of the bodybuilders I've worked with who are uh, chemically enhanced, there does seem to be a benefit to taking uh, somewhat more protein just because your body is able to synthesize more proteins and thus make use of the protein you're taking in. If you're asking for guidelines, there just aren't any evidence-based, research-based yeah. guidelines. So it's hard to give a, a real uh, definite answer on that. So if somebody says, like I used to tell people that I made some of my best gains and this might, obviously this is going to sound like overkill, but I was all, all the way up to two grams per pound at one point in my career. Mm -hmm. There isn't really any way to refute that because there isn't really any studies on enhanced lifters at my level. So Correct anecdotally, if I notice that I'm doing really well and I'm getting bigger and I'm getting stronger and all these things and all, everything's pointing in the right direction, there's not really anybody that can say two grams is too much. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. So I, I think one of the things we want to uh, start off by saying is that um, evidence, scientific evidence, research is limited. Uh, it, first of all, can only, in a general sense, can only provide you guidelines. And there's going to be gaps in the literature, particularly when we're talking about things like uh, exercise science and nutritional science, because there's just so many things that aren't studied and you just hit upon one of them. Uh, 
in particular to what you're saying, the other important thing to realize is that there is a very large inter-individual variance, meaning that when I do a study, let's say I carry out a study, which I do a lot of, mm -hmm. uh, you'll see differences. I'll give the same program to a group of people and some will gain almost nothing and some are gaining 20% increase in muscle. So yeah. what we report in research are the averages, mm -hmm. but the averages just basically, if you add everyone up and then divide by the number of subjects, you get an average. You're not an average. And yeah. ultimately we can give you guidelines to research, but like you said, number one, there's never been research on that. And number two, there's going to be a high inter-individual variance. So what we need to do is to ultimately, everyone needs to be their own experiment. You need to take uh, what we know from the literature, understand the limitations. And in this case, there's really no good guidelines for you to go by if you're a chemically enhanced lifter and certainly a high level bodybuilder. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then use your own judgment. You got to experiment. It's something I'm really glad you got into. And we, we were going to talk about this. So we'll get back. We'll go back to the protein afterwards. But now that we're onto this subject, uh, I kind of tell people all the time, actually, what you just said is your your own experiment. And I've, you know, I've heard Seth Ferrosi say the same thing. And it's because you're, we're kind of working through things as we go. And I just wonder how much variance there is between the scientific literature and day-to-day -day operate. Like there are some people who won't do anything if they can't find it in a study. And I feel like, okay, but if it's working in the gym for me and you can't find the study, should I stop doing it? So I, I, I kind of wanted to have you on partially to explain to people that there's not a study for everything, I guess. Well, not only is there not, that's a really great point. Not only is there not a study for everything, but even when you look at the combination of all studies, which is what you want to do. So I think an important point here is that someone who's evidence-based and I consider myself an evidence-based practitioner and we have a, a movement for evidence-based fitness. Mm -hmm. Evidence-based fitness is not just looking to research. Uh, it is taking the research that we have, uh, making guidelines out of them, understanding the limitations within these guidelines, then using your personal expertise in combination with whoever the individual is, whether it's yourself or someone that you're coaching mm -hmm. or consulting with. And that's how you form this evidence-based approach. So it's a three-pronged uh, position here. And yeah. uh, there are huge variances and it would depend upon what the topic is. The more evidence you have, the more confidence you can have in your guidelines. But even with the best evidence that we have in guidelines, there's always gonna be uh, variances that need to be taken into account. And you always will need to um, target it and basically have an N equals one experiment with everyone. So yeah. we use this basically, if we have good confidence in the evidence, we'll say, all right, here is we can, let's say you're talking about volume. We could say, all right, we're gonna start off with X number of sets based on the studies that we've seen, but you might not, you might need X plus number of sets or you might need X minus number of sets yeah. based upon your response and lifestyle factors and other other things, genetics, et cetera. Yeah. So if you're working with an athlete and you have your set of guidelines or have the research you've done and you're working with this person on whatever it may be, their diet, their training, whatever it is, and they come to you and they say, Brad, I'm noticing this. It works better when I don't do it the way we, we prescribed or whatever. Are you, are, are you able to just factor that into your research or do you say, no, let's stick to what the research says? Like, are you open to changing things based on what the athlete's telling you? 
Well, that's exactly what I said before is that absolutely that uh, the research is just going to provide your basis, your guidelines. So here's what I'd say too. There's two, you you talk about two camps. There are, you, you have your hardcore bodybuilders or, or, or strength coaches, whatever, and who say, you know what? Research is crap. I, you know, I know I, I live it. I do what I do. And that's, that's just as misguided as the researchers who say, I'm just going to stick completely to the research. They are yeah. synergistic. Yeah. Uh, if, if you are uh, one who, de- who denies the other is really misguided. They are, uh, they're swimming in a dark sea, basically. Mm-hmm. So you can, uh, if you have research as your underpinnings to provide guidelines, it's going to get you into a ballpark where you can make more intelligent decisions as to how to proceed based upon your own knowledge, which you're, which you've been doing, as well as what the individual. So if it's yourself, then you have to take your own, uh, what you feel for yourself, or if it's someone you're working with, like I do when I've consulted with uh, bodybuilders, uh, I need to know what their response is. Uh, you want to know their experiences because that ha- if you don't factor that in you're i mean you're just not a good coach yeah okay so let's go let's go to some myth, some bodybuilding myths that i think science is disproven or i don't maybe i don't know how to put it but um let's say morning cardio for example mm-hmm. i i love doing morning, morning cardio i won't go as far as saying it's better and it'll get you leaner faster but in my experience it has so where does that, and I know the science doesn't say that. The science says, no, it doesn't matter what time of day you do it, you're burning calories, and that's, you know, that's really it. Where, how do I, how do I mix that? Like, how do I figure that out? How do I say, but wait a minute, I feel this way. This makes me feel better. I feel like I'm getting leaner faster, but they're telling me it doesn't matter. So a couple things. Um, that is That happens to be a topic where we have quite good, basic research, as well as some applied research, I've actually carried it out. And there does not seem to be a fat burning benefit to it. However, this is what we talked about earlier. The studies have been, we don't have studies in lean bodybuilders. So Mm -hmm. I could say with a high degree of confidence uh, that if you are your average Joe, who's let's say got 10 pounds to lose, or, you know, isn't, let's say they're 20% body fat, it's not going to make any difference. Now, if you want to do it, if, if you like training in the morning uh, and there's a, uh, it gives you more psychological benefit or whatever, there's nothing wrong with it. So I'd encourage you. However, we don't have any evidence, let's say in very lean bodybuilders. I cannot rule out that if you are 6% body fat need to get down to 5% body fat, that it might give you that extra edge, that there might be some basis to that. Uh, And I would say then, it's worth experimenting if you feel that that's working. Now, again, the the thing you have to consider when you say, I feel it's working, you have to look at what your measures are. Mm -hmm. How objective, the one thing we do in research and why it's very effective is that we look to control all the variables. That can be difficult. And I think I don't wanna go down that, that's a slippery road to start talking about. We could talk for an hour just on the pratfalls of research, but you get better, at least better control where we start to control the variables were with uh, the average guy who's doing it, or even let's say a high, high level bodybuilder, you're changing other factors. You're not isolating just your car- fasted cardio. If you are, you, you might be able to get a better sense of it, but it's not going to hurt. So that would be where I'd say, look, it's not going to hurt you. Might it benefit you? Yeah. 
if it does, I can say with a high degree of confidence, it would have a small benefit, yeah. but that could be the difference between winning and losing a, a bodybuilding comp. So uh, that, that really, I think, is the essence, again, of evidence-based practice, where you're going to use the research, and then that's going to, the uh, way you then convey it would be specific to the individual. Yeah. So why, uh, can I ask you, there's this, this thing keeps coming up all the time whenever I talk to anybody about bodybuilding studies, and that there are none. Is it not valuable enough because there's such a small number of people like me, or is it why is there no studies done on guys that are, I guess, bigger or leaner or whatever the case may be? Well, I mean, if you're talking about pro bodybuilders, first of all, I've carried out a couple of studies in a concert with it with uh, colleagues in Brazil on very high level bodybuilders, but they're scarce. So let me ask you, uh, Fouad, if I said to you, Fouad, I have this great study, you're going to have to, for the next 10 weeks, just do X workout, you know, that's a canned workout. Uh, <laughs> Are you, are you going to yeah. say, you know, hey, sign me up for that? It's just with bodybuilders, you're, uh, you know, they're yeah. so focused on, on optimizing their own body. And, yeah. and there's not that many of them, too. So let's say, all right, you're going to say, you know what? I can deal with 10 weeks. Where am I finding 20 yeah. or 30 of you that's yeah. going to agree to do that? Yeah, so. yeah, it makes sense. Okay, um, going back to the protein, I, I do want to cover one thing that has um, been a, a topic of conversation. The amount of protein per meal, does it matter? And are, should some meals have more protein than others? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I actually uh, collaborated on a paper on, on a paper about that topic. And um, so there's two factors. Number one, there's this myth that you can only absorb 20 to 30 grams of protein in a, in a yeah. sitting. You can absorb as much protein basically as you take in. Absorption simply means getting the the amino acids from your gut into your circulatory system. Okay. And that's virtually unlimited. The question is how much can you utilize for muscle building purposes? And there does seem to be somewhat of a cap on that. Uh, but the studies to date that have looked at that are, are somewhat flawed because, so I'll give you a, a, for instance, and this is where you can see when you actually get into the uh, specifics of the studies, you need to really understand how research is carried out. So the uh, studies that show this limit to what you can use generally are using isolated whey protein without any other uh, food coming in. Okay. So they're going to get someone in fasted. They'll bring them into the lab completely fasted. Then they're going to give them, provide them with protein and track their muscle protein synthesis over the course of a day. Now we know that whey protein number one is a fast acting protein. It mm -hmm. gets absorbed very quickly into the system and gets utilize quickly. So you're going to have, if you're having a lot of it, it's going to tend to get the excess will get oxidized more readily. Okay. Whereas if you are taking in, let's say even a casein, which clumps in the stomach and is going to be utilized over a much longer time period where whey might be, let's say an hour and a half, uh, casein would be four or five hours where it's yeah. going to get utilized. You wouldn't have as much oxidation when you take in uh, carbs and fats along with the protein, as most people do again, it's going to slow down the transit in the gut and thus introduce it much more slowly. So uh, there's not been great research on this. There's been some research showing that even up to, let's say, 70 grams in a sitting uh, has at least some, certainly it doesn't cause negative, you're not, it doesn't look like it's having detrimental effects on the utilization, but you know, it certainly levels off. So yeah. 
the general rule that I would say would be to space out your, um, if you're looking to maximize muscle protein synthesis and muscle development, would be to evenly space out uh, your protein intake over four meals. Okay. Uh, now, most bodybuilders are going to probably be eating more than that, but um, you know, some wouldn't. If you're going to have four meals, let's say you're going to go for two grams per kilogram, that would be 0.5 uh, grams per meal that you'd okay. want to take in. And I, I think that at least gives you the, uh, it kind of errs on the side of caution of not oxidizing some of the aminos. Mm -hmm. Is there a benefit to doing six meals or seven meals? I mean, if you're telling me that I can get in uh, a gram per pound of protein, is it better to do it in three meals or is it better to do it in six meals? Does it matter? Seems that four would probably be a, a kind of a sweet spot there. Uh, doing it more isn't beneficial. It's probably not going to hurt as long as you're taking insufficient protein. If you're taking in uh, suboptimal protein, there's something called a leucine threshold. Leucine mm -hmm. is one of the uh, branch chain amino acids. It's an essential amino acid. And basically a, a leucine kickstarts the muscle protein synthetic response. If your leucine level is low, you do not kickstart that process. And uh, it's not gonna be, if you're a meat eater, uh, it's, again, it starts, here's where there are some uh, flies in the ointment. If you're a vegan bodybuilder, if you're taking in vegetable proteins, you're gonna need more uh, if you're not taking in as much. If, now, if you're, a, uh, if you're an enhanced bodybuilder, you're gonna be needing more protein and there might be then a benefit to spreading out the meals over more, uh, more frequent meals because your body would be synthesizing more and you'd have yeah. less, less probability of, of oxidizing those proteins. Yeah. I mean, that was kind of my point. So if I was getting in four meals and I'm done eating my meals by, let's say I start at 9am and I eat every couple hours, I'm done eating my meals by, I don't know, three o'clock or four o'clock. Uh, if I have the rest of the night to go, if I go to bed at nine or 10 o'clock at night, it's not really going to benefit me not to eat anything for those four or five hours, right? Yeah. So there, there is some evidence actually that there's like having nighttime uh, protein enhanced. Like if you have casein, let's say right before you go to bed, it's going to keep the anabolic response going. It doesn't, if you're again, taking in, uh, it really is going to be dependent on your overall protein intake. Cause as long as you're sp spreading out your protein ac across the day, it doesn't seem that taking then let's say a pre-bedtime protein meal has any additive effects provided you're getting that 2.0, 2.2 yeah. grams. And if you're enhanced somewhat more than that, yeah. but again, we don't have any studies in high level bodybuilders on that. So could that be where you're, uh, let's say if you're on gear and that your body is synthesizes proteins at a much more rapid rate that you would be able to synthesize more during sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a topic that hasn't been studied and it's not going to hurt you. So my general rule of thumb is, is that look at the data, but then also understand that what the limitations are in the data. If it's not going to hurt, it might help. Yeah. If I'm a bodybuilder. Uh, I would recommend doing it. Yeah. I'm more, I'm not as, I wasn't as concerned with the pre-bed meal as I was. What's the amount of time that somebody can go before they become catabolic? Generally four to five hours or so is uh, you're a protein rich meal. The anabolic effects last about four to five hours or so. So let's yeah. say you're spacing out your meals to four. That's why I said four meals. So let's I say see. you have seven o'clock, 11 o'clock, uh, three o'clock, and then seven o'clock you're, yeah. you're getting in all your, your meals. Why do bodybuilders eat every two or three hours? If that's the case. 
I, I think it could, well, first of all, if you're looking to gain mass, there's a benefit to it because it's just hard to get very large meals. If I yeah. say eat 2000, you know, 1500 calories, a lot of people have trouble da uh, downing that in, in a single meal. It's just easier yeah. to get more calories. in. the, during the cut, uh, again, it's another myth, but there was this myth that if you ate every, uh, few hours you would stave off the hunger the uh starvation response okay and that you would then basically there was this myth that if uh, you go long periods without eating that the body senses starvation and slows its metabolism down and that really has not been that's again where science can trump yeah practical experience <laughs> yeah. that it just doesn't show that and that's why I like both. And that's that's kind of why I like having people like you on so they can help clarify these things. One of the things I always thought was you shouldn't go longer than three hours though eating because I thought then your body would become catabolic. So you're telling me four or five hours is more is more reasonable. Yeah. Now, if you're just going to have a whey protein shake, then you're yeah. going to need. That's where the higher frequency would be a benefit. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, if you're having a mixed meal where you're having, let's say, some fats, some carbs, and protein, mm -hmm. the transit through the gut it just takes a while to get all the nutrients assimilated, absorbed through the gut, and then into the system. And I mean, it's been well studied in about four to six hours, four to five, four to yeah. six hours, depending on the size of the meal and the composition. So like you said, then really this whole six meals a day, seven meals a day thing boils down to, I got to be, I got to get 4,000 calories in a day. I better break them up into smaller meals so I can do it. Correct. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I want to go from that to um, gut health. Can you help people with gut health? <laughs> because there seems to be uh, a growing number of people who are very interested in gut health and how to cure their own issues. And I don't know if this is related to how much we're eating or if it's related to the processed foods we're eating or if it's anabolics have something to do with it or if it's supplementation. Um, so yeah, gut health is a very interesting uh, issue. And um, it's been it's been, there's a lot of studies on it, but we still don't have a great, uh, great understanding at this point. So there's something called a FODMAP diet, F-O-D-M-A-P, mm -hmm. uh, where you take in, and there's specific foods, you can just Google FODMAP. Yeah. Uh, it's been well, you know, well studied as a, a treatment per se, uh, for those who have gut issues. And it's taking in, uh, certain types of foods like, uh, legumes, so beans, uh, certain types of fruits and veggies, um, milk, yogurt, yogurt's a biggie. Um, there, there are probiotics and prebiotics that you could take. So taking in uh, like yogurt is a, uh, a probiotic uh, that's, okay. it's been very uh, well studied. Now, again, everyone, when we talk about gut health, People are different. And that's why when uh, it's, I think that would be a topic unto itself for an entire yeah. uh, podcast, because it really depends upon what the person's issues are. So someone could have, uh, let's say, celiac disease, uh, you know, which, which is a, uh, a known condition, but only a very small percentage of people have. If you do have celiac disease, you're going to need to stay away from, from weed. Yeah. Um, you might have lactose intolerance that causes gut health. A lot more people have lactose issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so again, it really would depend upon what the, uh, what the cause is. And you can't really give a cookie cutter answer on something. Yeah. I guess what I'm getting at is a lot of bodybuilders end up, as they get older, and myself included, end up with more uh, bloating issues or harder to digest foods that they used to digest 
very easily. Like for me, my, my gut's very sensitive to foods that used to be no problem to digest. So what, is it just the amount of food that we're eating that's putting it, taking a toll on our bodies or is there something we can do to help mitigate that? I'm not up on the mechanistic aspects of it. Uh, okay. You know, I haven't looked into uh, the causality factors. I've, I've more looked at the, uh, the treatment, the uh, applied aspects of it. Mm -hmm. uh, fr from what I do know, there are, you can get uh, allergies. So basically through eating over time, you can develop allergies. And look, what I would say is, is that if you're experiencing uh, some gut health issue, the first thing I would recommend is going to a doctor and getting uh, food out, getting tested for food allergies to, to try to localize what your issue is. If you just try to uh, treat it by yourself, yeah. basically you're, you're spitting in, in the dark, you know, it's, yeah. you have no idea where that is going. I, I think a lot of people try and do like an elimination type diet where they just start taking things away and seeing what might help. So that's kind of the first thing people do. You can do that, but that can be a long process. So yeah, again, yeah. that's, that's again, kind of where I, I think if you go to a, a qualified physician, you get a test within a very short period of time, you can find out whether there is a, a specific allergy and look, that's always an option to, if they can't localize what they think it is, then you can resort to that. But I just, to me, I go for the quickest answer possible mm -hmm. and an allergy test to me would be the first line of defense there. So I want to turn to training. Um, people are constantly asking me about training splits and they're like, is this split better than that split? Is the, you know, push pull legs. Should I do the bro split one body part a day? And I don't know when this became so prevalent because I've been bodybuilding for 20 plus years. And for some reason in the last two to three years, it seems to be the most pressing question. Does it matter? No, <laughs> there is no such thing as a best split. Um, it, when we talk about splits, it really is going to come down to how, uh, what your individual needs are. So like when I work uh, with competitive bodybuilders, I would look at what your weak points are and try to devise splits because I, I'm a fan. And again, it's not been well studied, but I believe that, uh, we, we have a amount of volume, everyone has a, a specific amount of volume that they can uh, accomplish without really devolving into overtraining. But that's a total amount of volume. We, we shouldn't be looking at volume based upon every, uh, every body part should have the same volume. You can give more volume to weaker muscle groups, which I'm a, a, I advocate, and less volume to a muscle. If, you, if your biceps are a real strong point, why would you be hammering them with a lot of volume? It just yeah. doesn't make sense. You want to save up that volume for the muscle groups that are, uh, that are weaker points. And then you'd want to, the way I approach it, is to try to have more frequency. So you then structure your split so that let's say your hamstrings were a weak point. I'd look to maybe do hamstrings three times a week where you're doing other body parts once a week and you'd want your split to be able to accommodate Mm -hmm. how you're factoring that in. And again, that would be very individual. Uh, th there is, I would say, uh, again, not well studied, but just based upon the evidence we do have and just any uh, scientific rationale that you can come up with, there's no such thing as a best split. It's, it's individual okay. like most of these things. So, but there is a better, but there is a better split for somebody who, if they want to target something, like you said, That's like correct. if they want to try. So, let me ask you, can somebody do hamstrings three times a week and it be beneficial? 
Sure. I have done that. As a matter of fact, the uh, former, I, I worked with a competitive bodybuilder, just got his pro card a little over a year ago in classic uh, physique, Joe Tolvey, great bodybuilder. Okay. It's exactly the structure we use. That was, we, he had two uh, weak points. It was his uh, middle delts and his hamstrings. And both of them, we, we look to increase his volume substantially and to number one, do, do them three times per week. So uh, uh, allowing, well, it was, it was actually three times over a nine day. We actually start, it doesn't, okay. nothing magical about a week either. So we structured, <laughs> we structured a split over, yeah. basically yeah. it was a four day split. So it was yeah. over a nine day period. So it was three times uh, per nine days. And uh, again, one of the issues is, is you don't want to have too much volume in a given session. That's where yeah. you can kind of waste volume. So if you're doing more than, let's say 10 sets, uh, for a given muscle group, you start to get into that issue where you're not going to be able to uh, increase your protein synthetic response for that muscle group. And that's why then spacing out that training over time gives you that ability to have more volume over a given time. Period. Can you, can you explain that to me? How does doing more than 10 sets and yeah, I'm assuming you're talking 10 working sets. Correct. Um, how does, how's doing more than 10 working sets interfere with the protein synthesis? Well, it doesn't interfere with it. It's just, so you think of it as a curve. So you do one set, you're going to get this amount of protein synthesis. Yeah. It's not if you could do 20 sets and you just keep getting more protein. Uh, okay. okay. But the protein synthetic response, it's not a linear line where it just keeps going up sure. as you keep doing more sets in a given workout. And this has actually been shown. I mean, this yeah. is where, again, research can, this is where you use research to guide practice. And sure. it's shown that you start to, you get a big spike for the first set, you know, somewhat bigger spike, and then it starts to level off. And that leveling off point, it's not exact. And again, it's going to be somewhat different for in, uh, inter-individuals. But from what we have seen, it seems to be in that eight to 10 working sets per, uh, per muscle group. Does, does taking steroids change that number? Uh, that has never been studied and it, it very well could. Well, uh, I'm not asking these, sorry to interrupt you. I'm not asking to uh, be argumentative. I'm asking because somebody listening would say, well, that what you just said makes perfect sense for somebody like Dorian Yates, who does low volume, he gets the protein response and goes home. Um, but it doesn't make sense for somebody like Jay Cutler, who says he did 20 sets for every body part. So I'm asking that if, uh, the only reason I asked about the steroid question is I'm wondering if this kind of changes that protein response. It, it certainly could. So does it? Uh, it's never been studied. We don't have yeah. studies in competitive bodybuilders. And by the yeah. way, when we're talking pro bodybuilders, they're taking. So let's say I had a study of someone taking steroids that would not necessarily mimic what I, I, I won't even use Jay Cutler, but let's say a given bodybuilder who's doing GH yeah. and IGF. Yeah. And, and I mean, the the pharmacological dosages that they're using are just so beyond what you'd ever see sure. uh, in some of them, at least. Yeah. That uh, trying to uh, guide practice within things like that is impossible. And okay. I would say that that's where, again, I can, um, uh, I can give generalized recommendations, but that's where you have to use your N equals one. Okay. Okay. So what is too much volume? Like first you said frequency, which is important, but then you said volume. So more than 10 sets is too much volume. What is too much frequency? Like how well, many times? When you say vibe per session. Per session, yeah. Per session, yeah. But, but, but what I'm saying is, I didn't like, I personally wouldn't do hamstrings three times a week because I would still be sore from the time before. So, or in, in nine days, I guess. So, does soreness matter? 
It doesn't matter. No. So you can train when you, so now if the soreness is preventing you from training properly, then that's going to matter. If you, if you're just sore and you could get a great workout in, there's no detriment to training while you're sore. Uh, soreness wow. has uh, the, the actual mechanistic aspects of soreness has to do, um, they talk about muscle damage, but in a highly trained lifter, it tends to be more in what's called the extracellular matrix, which is a uh, supporting structure within muscle, it seems at least the evidence we have. Uh, but if you're, now if you're too sore to move, yeah. uh, I would say then, yeah, that's gonna be a big problem. And then, then you have to then work around how you're gonna train needs to be worked around that. But sure. uh, just being sore by itself is not going to affect your uh, your muscle protein synthetic responses. So this has got to be a this is going to be a bro sciencey thing for for sure. But I always assumed that if you're sore, the muscle was still was still damaged, and that was your body basically telling you to wait. And you're saying that I can I can go ahead and go through it because the one of the, one of the things that always scared me was if I'm sore and I train one am I preventing the muscle from growing as much as it can? And two, am I risking myself? Am I risking injury because I'm overtraining a muscle because it's still sore? And again, that would really the it's not a yes or no question. It would have to do with the degree to which you were sore. Yeah. So uh, if you're, let's say in three days, if you were still really sore, yeah, uh, then you're not going to want to train. Then there could be, yeah, th then that would be a negative effect. If you feel some soreness, uh, because usually soreness in a high level bodybuilder, now you might be just ultra sensitive to that, but yeah. the vast majority of athletes, uh, high level athletes I've worked with, it's for uh, 24 to 48 hours is where your maximal soreness comes in. Yeah. Uh, and then by that 72 hour period, it's pretty much mitigated. Yeah, it depends. I've had some leg days where I was like three days later, still having a tough time walking. Uh, then, so. <laughs> then you'd have to, yeah. Then is it, Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that would be where it's individual and you'd have to, I would not then recommend if you're, yeah. because it's, if nothing else, whether that's going to impair your protein synthetic response, it's going to impair your ability to train with a high degree of intensity. And that mm -hmm. in itself would be a negative for someone, especially at your level. Well, that leads me to another question, which is how much is too much? Like if I'm sore for like, like I remember there would be periods in my career, like years at a time where after a leg day, I would be sore for six days and just be better in time for the seventh day. Like when I was ready to get back to the gym, like ready to get back for leg day. So is that too, like, is, is there a place where it's too much? Like if somebody's sore for five, six, like, is, is that like, Hey, you need to pull back a little bit. So let me ask you this. W were you changing your workouts frequently from session, from one workout to the next? Uh, my workouts always change, but not dramatically. Like the staples are there. Like for a leg workout, there's always going to be a squat, a leg press, a hack squat. They might change the order or I might change uh, the rep ranges might change a little bit, but maybe some intensity techniques might change, but the staple exercises are there. That's interesting because generally speaking, where uh, advanced bodybuilders and, and lifters get uh, more sore is when they're changing around their workouts. Uh, let's say you're doing squats one uh, session, it's squat and leg extension and lunge. Then the next one, you're going to do a leg press yeah. and a uh, sissy squat. And that's usually because the movement patterns are, are somewhat different uh, yeah. and you, the recruitment patterns. That's where you'd see now, if you're doing the same workout, because that was one thing I might suggest is yeah. that you, you don't use as much uh, variety. You don't change uh, your exercises as much. If you're experiencing the, uh, 
you know, again, it's, it's very individual how people experience yeah. uh, soreness. Is there a detriment to it? Yeah, because it's going to prevent you from, uh, from being able to train again. And uh, mm -hmm. now, obviously, you experienced great success with it. Uh, could you have experienced? The question is, could you have experienced better success if you did something different? And that's yeah. a question that I would we'd have to discuss. Often. Well, no, I mean, I guess, I guess, the, I guess the real question I'm trying to get to is for people listening, because there's a lot of young lifters that are listening to this and they're trying to find their way. And I always thought when I was younger was just the harder I could go, the better. So I would be doing the same exercises, but I just made sure I went harder every week. And I was just continuously sore day after day, week after week. And I don't think it was right. So I guess the question I'm trying to get to is, is there a way to measure how hard you're pushing? And is there, is there a place that's too far? Like you've gone too far. You need to pull back a little bit. Like if somebody's experiencing soreness for five days, could it be that they're not necessarily super sensitive, but could it be just be that they're going, they're doing too much? Yeah, absolutely. It could be. So, um, I mean, my, I used to be a, a more of a proponent of, uh, you got to push, you got to push, you got to push. Uh, as I've gotten more experienced and, and worked with a broader range of, uh, of lifters over many years, as you can probably tell, and as well as gotten more into research, uh, I've gotten much more conservative with the use of failure training. And I think one of the things that I would probably suggest, uh, are you familiar with the repetitions in reserve? Yeah, me and me and John, uh, me and John just talked about that. RIR, yeah. RIR. It's RIR. Yeah. yeah. So uh, my general sense would be in, in recommendations were do RIRs of one to two on a majority of your working sets and only push to failure. Let's say on your last set or maybe your last last two. Some of that is dependent upon on uh, cycling, how you're, uh, you know, let's say a mesocycle and how you're structuring your training over time. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you, you, if you're pushing to failure, let's say on 10 working sets uh, over time, you might just be overdoing it at that point and, uh, yeah. or more. Uh, and that would be something certainly I, I think that would need to be looked at. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I actually think that is the answer because in my earlier days, I would go to failure on all my sets. So that was probably the main problem. Um, and by the way, that was the, uh, the bodybuilder that I told you about, uh, Joe Tolby. That was one of the things I had to do because he had that mindset. And yeah. I was like, Joe, we got we to gotta pull you back from that ledge. You can't, because for him, if he wasn't not only going all out to failure, but then getting forced reps, on, yeah, know, yeah. he wasn't training hard enough. And, and when we increased the frequency, I said, Joe, we're, we're going to, you know, you need to selectively use failure more, more often now. We need to balance it. And I, I can tell you, I can show you pictures, uh, yeah. but we, uh, he brought his hamstrings up nicely for his, and one is pro card. Yeah. It's such a fine line for people because we stress, you know, on this podcast and, you know, everybody else on their own Instagrams stresses that you should be training harder, train harder, train harder. But then at the same time, we're saying, don't train too hard. Like make sure, you know what I mean? So it's like a really fine line um, between growing and, you know, going backwards because you did too much. You, you um, need to train hard and you need to train smart. So yeah. the two are not mutually exclusive. Uh, too much, too much of anything is you, too much water you can die from. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So again, it's uh, you do want to train hard. You also have people say, ah, I never go to failure. I, I mean, it would depend on the person. I am certainly a believer that as you 
really get to the upper levels of bodybuilding, there's a need to really push yourself. Uh, and if not, you're not going to get, cause you're getting close to that genetic ceiling to really tap into that genetic ceiling. I'm a believer that you need to have some training that is to failure, but I think a lot of bodybuilders tend to overdo it. Now, where do you stand on doing less, less like that, the saying that less is more, and I don't mean in a training session, but in a training split, like I've talked to people who think doing four days a week is actually more beneficial than doing five or six because more rest days. It's kind of like torture the muscle for the day and then take time off instead of that repeated, you know, the high frequency stuff. I, I don't know where I really stand on that. I know I worked with John Meadows for a long time and I did six days a week for a really long time for, for a few years and I had great benefit from it, but you also listen to people like Dorian Yates and people of that thought process that say less is going to get you bigger, faster. Yeah. So again, when it comes to a split, I think first of all, it's individual. I also don't think we should look at splits as being, this is my split and this is what I do for the year. Mm -hmm. I think that you should really look at training in terms of blocks so yeah. let's say you're going to have a six month period. You can have a two month block, another two month block and another two month block where you structure your workouts and you have, basically you plan your, your splits up. You, you plan your training uh, cycles over that period of time. And that would change based upon what your goals are leading up, let's say to a competition or, or whatever it is you're going to do. So having static uh, thought processes, I think is a, uh, is one of the misguided things that I think too many lifters fall into that it's this or that when it could be combinations of this and that. But I don't mean, okay, let's assume we're, we're going to work in phases is a phase of four days a week beneficial or is it too little? Well, again, when you say a phase of four, is it four over what period of time a week? Well, how long would you, how long would you think a phase would be good for? Like if somebody's going to do, the frequency. So you're yeah. saying, could it be a four day split one day off then a four, then four more days? Are you talking about within a week span that you're doing, let's say. I'm saying four, within, I'm saying within a week training four, day. four days only. Yeah, absolutely. Now, if I was going to do that, um, I know Dorian was big. That was Dorian's yeah. uh, split. Yeah. Uh, I, I personally uh, use uh, splits like that doing upper body, lower body type splits where I do okay. upper day where we actually get to work out twice a week. Now, a lot of that, again, depends. Again, having a fixed uh, thought, especially with an a, uh, advanced bodybuilder, I'm also a believer that some muscle groups might need one day a week and some might need more. So you might have some muscles doing two days a week, some might are doing three and some might are yeah. doing one. So again, looking at it in that context, I think is somewhat misguided. You have a structure and then you need to look at what your strong points and your weak points are and say, I think this, I can get away with doing once a week. This yeah. Mike Matarazzo, you probably remember, mm -hmm. uh, guy had the best, one of the best uh, set of calves in bodybuilding, never trained his calves. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there were certain yeah. genetic muscles that you just don't need. And that would take away from your, uh, if you don't train it, then you have more volume. I think of volume as a budget. So you, you look at, you know, this is the amount that I have to spend on volume. Yeah. Uh, if I don't have to train that, I can spend more sets on other muscle groups. Um, when you spoke about training in phases, I wanted to get to one of the papers that you uh, posted on your Instagram talked about strength and having strength phases before hypertrophy phases. Mm -hmm. 
I'd like to get into that because there's a, there's a common thought that strength isn't relevant and that you can get big by lifting light weights. And that study kind of pretty, pretty much proved, disproved that thought. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So the study had some limitations to it, but I, I would say that I am a fan of that uh, thought process because, so again, it, it comes down to conceptually that study did was kind of a proof of principle study, which mm. did lend, when we look at studies, we don't want to say it proves or sometimes you can disprove, but it doesn't really prove anything. It lends support to a given okay. theory. And okay. that helped to, again, I, I would say we need a lot more research before I would be comfortable in saying, this is something I, I completely buy into, but I've been an advocate of that. And here's the reason mm -hmm. that let's say your focus is going to be on moderate to lighter loads, and that's going to get you more volume. If you have a, a pre-phase of, of doing strength work, that's going to allow you to use heavier loads during your moderate load training. So let's say you're Let's say you can generally do a uh, hundred pound uh, dumbbell presses for, let's say incline uh, dumbbell presses yeah. uh, for, ten, for 10 reps. If you proceeded that with a strength phase, you might be able to do 110 pounds uh, when you got to that uh, moderate phase. Yeah. That then is going to create more mechanical tension during your strength phase. We know that mechanical tension is the primary driver of hypertrophy. And thus it just, there has a logical basis to it, whether it does pan out, that study seemed to suggest that it does, but I think that uh, it's it's a good uh, it has good practical value. So you said mechanical tension is the main driver in hypertrophy, right? Mm -hmm. Isn't that saying basically that the more you can lift, the bigger you're going to get? Uh, <laughs> I mean, that, that's kind of I mean, the more you can lift, the more tension you're going to create, right? Well, that's where it starts to get somewhat uh, hazy. So at a given uh, rep range, yeah. So let's say if okay. I if I lifted 10 reps at 100 pounds versus lifting 10 reps at 110 pounds, yes. But what if I lifted 100 pounds instead of doing uh, 110, uh, let's say instead of going for 10 reps, I was able to get 12 reps. Yeah. With that. You're then again getting more mechanical tension because you're doing more work within yeah. that given set. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily have to be using heavier loads. There's actually very compelling evidence that you can get... Um, very similar growth using lighter loads versus heavier loads, that the amount of load lifted, but that is predicated on training to fatigue or at least close to fatigue. Okay. So if you lifted a lighter load at, and you're going far from failure, then you're going to have less mechanical tension. Right. The reason that it seems to pan out is that you're creating the mechanical tension by going towards failure or close to failure. So the reason heavy works and heavy is a relative term, obviously, but the reason heavy works is because you're able to fail. Yeah, ex exactly. I mean, I can lift 20 pound dumbbells for three hours and not get tired, right? But 100 pound dumbbell and I'm done. So, yeah. so the heavy matters because you're trying to fail and you don't want to, does it matter if I fail at 25 reps or if I fail at 10? That's the whole point is no. So we, I actually carried out a study in, in well-trained bodybuilders, well, not bodybuilders, but well-trained lifters. They weren't your caliber, but yeah. I mean, they, they were uh, three, four years of consistent lifting experience. So I would say they are intermediate. I would call them intermediate lifters, you know, sure. not hardcore bodybuilders, but we put one group doing 10 reps uh, to failure, eight to 12 reps. The other group did 25 to 35 reps to failure. Okay. We had them do a total body routine three days a week, uh, zero difference in their muscle growth. We looked really? at biceps, triceps, quads. Uh, yep. And, That's crazy uh, to think. So that basically means 
I could squat, you know, 135 pounds for 30 reps, say, and fail at 30 or 40, whatever it may be. And then I can do 405 for 10 reps. And those, the muscle gain I'm going to get from both is equal. That is correct. Now, there, there, there could be a caveat to this. Um, there has been some talk that I assume you're familiar with different fiber types, type one yeah. versus type two fibers. So you're, for those who don't know uh, in the audience, type one fibers are your endurance oriented fibers. Uh, they don't have as great growth potential, uh, but they can basically, they can uh, go on for long periods of time. Whereas your type two fibers, they're your strength oriented fibers. They have a somewhat greater growth potential than your type ones, uh, but they fatigue more easily. Sure. There is some, uh, there is a theory and there's some evidence to show that you might get greater growth in your type one fibers with your lighter loads and greater growth in your type two fibers with your heavier loads, which would okay. lend, if true, that would mean that it would be beneficial to do some light load training and some heavier load training to get all your fibers maximized. Yeah. Uh, we recently carried out a study that did not seem to support that, uh, that okay. the fiber response seemed to be equal. Uh, but I'd say we still need more research to get a better handle. And I would say, again, without knowing, it probably makes sense. And I'm, again, an advocate of this. Without knowing when there might be a benefit, do some light load training, do some heavier load training. And that way you, it's not going to hurt you and it could help in terms of optimizing the fiber type specific response. How do we know, is there a way to know how many type one, type two fibers that we have? Biopsy. <laughs> So, but like how seriously like i can go to the doctor and get a biopsy and he can tell me yeah but i have to get a biopsy of each muscle it's not like one that's, big, that's correct yeah. now generally yeah. speaking uh, most people are fiber type specific so uh the people who are type 2 dominant tend to be uh type 2 dominant in most muscles yeah you know in the major muscles where you type but you know what Flood? it's not going to change much anyway yeah. uh Let's say you found out that you're, you were 65%, 35%. Uh, you know, you're still going to have a substantial amount of type one fibers yeah. and need to work them. So yeah. uh, people make a lot about that, but I don't think uh, it really means much. Hmm. It's, it's, there has to be some other factors. Don't you think though? I mean, it's, it just sounds crazy to me. It's very hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that I could do one plate versus four and still gain the same amount of size. Is there any other factors that could be playing a part in that? Um, again, it seems to be the, uh, the, the mechanical tension aspect that when you start getting heavier, so let's say I'm doing, I'm doing a set of 30. So you said, uh, let's say squats at 135 yeah. pounds for 30 reps. Yeah. Uh, on your 10th rep, you could, that that's going up like butter. Yeah. As you're going to your 20th rep, you're starting to move a little bit slower. It's starting to get harder. What's happening there is you're starting to force recruitment of more and more type higher threshold motor units, which are your type two fibers. And as you start getting higher and higher, let's say your 25th rep, 26th, 27th, these fibers are coming in, the higher threshold units are coming into play to a greater extent. Now, mm -hmm. could it be you're, re, you're cycling the type one motor units, uh, type one uh, muscle fibers again more? This is where, again, we don't, science has not been able to really to tell us this. At this yeah. point. Uh, anything else would be speculation, but it seems that the mechanical tension aspect in the recruitment is responsible for the majority of it. Okay. I do have one more thing I want to ask about this and then I'll let it go, but yeah. I just have to ask. Um, 
I've done what you've, I've done the things you're saying. Like I've done lightweight workouts with a lot of reps, sometimes for legs or for any body part I've done them. And I get really sore for a day. Right. But there's a difference. And I'm sure anybody out there who's, and even yourself, if you've trained, like if you've purposely gone into train, try and train as heavy as you can, there's a deeper soreness. I guess I could say it's a different feeling. Like the next day after the muscle feels more full, like my legs will remain full for two, three days after a heavy leg day versus that lighter workout. The lighter workout still got me sore, still felt a lot of pain, but it kind of went away in a day where the heavier workout lasted longer. Is there any explanation for that? Or is that just in my head? Uh, well, there does seem to be more muscle damage uh, from heavier load training. Okay. So uh, that very well, again, it's without getting a, without doing scans of you and knowing yeah. exactly what's going on. But uh, certainly there would be the logical rationale is that heavier load training does seem to cause more muscle damage than lighter load training. Okay. So is when we say more muscle damage, it means we're, we're going to grow well, more if we're eating, so if we're eating properly, not necessarily. So damage, uh, that's again, another good question, which, uh, there, there is some evidence that damage might be involved in the response, but, uh, that is not clear at this point, but you also get more what's called metabolic stress with the higher rep training work at, and that is another mechanism. So could those mechanisms be, um, synergistic where doing both again, would benefit. There is some, there, there's been a few studies that have shown that the signaling. So again, I don't know how technically you want to get with this, but it's okay. um, muscle I'll, try, I'll try and follow along. Yeah. Muscle development is uh, predicated on what's called intracellular signaling. Okay. So there's an enzymatic cascade that causes protein synthesis. So there's a series of, of enzymes that are signaled from, it's called mechanosensor, uh, okay. mechanosignaling. And uh, you have these mechanosensors, so the body, the muscles sense a, uh, a stimulus, which is lifting. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's your mechanical tension. Then it's going to send, it's going to convert the mechanical signals into chemical signals. Okay. And it goes through. So anyway, to make a long story short, uh, we have different pathways, different intracellular anabolic signaling pathways. And there's, there is some evidence that the pathways with heavier load training are different. We have different anabolic pathways that are uh, initiated through heavier load training than light load training. Could that be then where you get, again, a synergism from training some heavier load and some lighter load? Mm -hmm. Speculative. We don't, we don't know. You can't necessarily take a, an acute uh, evidence like that and look at signaling and say, well, that's necessarily going to cause more muscle growth. I could speculate it might. Yeah. Uh, but again, without here's where we need to just say there might be a benefit to it. There doesn't seem to be any downside. So if I'm a high level bodybuilder or coaching a high level bodybuilder, I'm going to say, you know what, this is a, a sound strategy. So we should have some work in here that's going to look at light loads and you can focus my general, uh, the way I approach it is that I look to do lighter loads on your single joint uh, movements. Because if you've ever done squats with yeah. a set of 30 with uh, with squats, I mean, you are winded. And it's, I mean, yeah. in the study we did, they puked. I mean, the yeah. uh, a majority of the subjects in the first week just 
rebuke it. Yeah. Uh, but doing it more on the, it's, there's less stress, again, in the uh, single joint movements, let's say a leg extension, biceps curls, where your uh, compound movements, you're using more of the heavier load. Uh, yeah. And there's a synergism there and, and potentially a benefit towards growth. Yeah. Can you, this might be a silly question, but can you explain the difference between metabolic stress and muscle damage? Yeah, sure. Where, what is the difference between the, I'm trying, cause I'm trying to follow along here and I'm, I'm not sure where, where those differ. Yeah. Metabolic stress is an acute phenomenon. So that means you're experiencing it during a, uh, during the workout itself. Okay. Uh, and metabolic stress is the accumulation of metabolites, which are breakdown products from, uh, from substances within the body. The primary one uh, that we look at is lactic acid. So lactic okay. acid is going to be a metabolite. So we know that when you're doing, let's say a very high repetition set, you're going to feel the burn. When you feel the burn, that's where you're building up metabolic stress. You're building up metabolites, particularly lactic acid. Okay. And there is some evidence that lactate itself is a, it has intracellular signaling um, and mechanosensoring abilities and okay. those might have anabolic effects. Uh, whereas muscle damage, you actually see that after you, while it's developing during the workout, the experience of that happens post-workout. Whereas metabolic stress, the effects of that are gone within a few minutes, yeah. you know, certainly an hour after a workout. Sure. Uh, the effects of the metabolic stress, the metabolites are going to be cleared. Whereas muscle damage has, basically that has to do with um, micro tears within the muscle structures, okay. whether the, uh, the cell membrane, uh, like I, I talked about before, the extracellular matrix, which is a connective tissue uh, mm -hmm. within the muscle, the structures within the muscle itself. Mm -hmm. So they, they're just different uh, mechanisms. So I, I think, I think when most people, correct me if I'm wrong, I think most people, when they think of muscle growth, they think of muscle damage. They think of the damage they did during their workout and that's, that's what's going to make them grow. But you're saying the metabolic stress is also part of that. Well, it, metabolic stress is separate from muscle damage. But yeah. So there's three, there's, and I actually published a paper on this uh, years ago, uh, talking about the three primary, um, at least hypothetical factors involved in, in um, hypertrophy and me mechanical tension is, is the overall driver, but that uh, muscle damage and metabolic stress might be synergistic. Again, that's where uh, we need more evidence. There's some evidence showing they are, there's some evidence showing they aren't. I will say this, and you kind of hit on this before, too much muscle damage is a negative. So yeah. and that's why when people walk in, they tend to equate muscle damage or a lot of bodybuilders do with, uh, with muscle growth. So they, they want to walk out like Frankenstein, you know, I can't, yeah. Yeah. I, I can't put my arms down yeah. and, and I'm walking out. I can't walk properly. That is doing too much. When you're doing that, basically you have, you're impairing your ability to train properly. The body then has to repair that damage and it's not going to repair it in time for you to synthesize muscle proteins uh, well enough. But there could be uh, other factors. And again, don't want to get too technical, but there's something called satellite cells. Muscle damage activates something called satellite cells, yeah. which are promoters of growth. Now, how that factors into the equation, are they additive or not? Still not clear. 
the idea would be that there's kind of a sweet spot to muscle damage. You want to have some muscle damage, but not too much mm -hmm. to maximize the muscle uh, hypertrophic response. This goes back to something John told me a long time ago is you just, you want to, if you dig the, if you dig the hole too deep, it's going to take you too long to get out of it. So he's like, train just hard enough so that you can get back the next day, which is kind of what you're, what you've been saying all along. And so I, I, not to interrupt, but I, I do want to just uh, basically just say that John Meadows to me is the epitome of a really top flight pro. Like he, he takes the science, as we talked about before, he, he delves into the science, he understands the basic science, but he has that experience and he looks at the individuals. He, he doesn't do the canned program thing. So yep. he has that, he just has a really great sense of using his expertise in combination, what we know through literature to, to develop uh, programs. Yeah, I think John's kind of changed my thinking a lot. I started working with him in 2014 and John was the one who taught me that the science is important but sometimes you can't explain everything that happens in the gym. So he's kind of the one who got me on that. The same thing, which we've been saying all along really is that use the science as a guide, but it's not the be all end all. That's so that's kind of John's uh, influence on me. But um, the last, I, I don't want to keep you too long. The last thing I want to cover before you go is the pump. How, <laughs> how important is the pump? Cause I, I hear people say uh, you can still grow muscle without a pump. You can still get big without a pump. The pump doesn't matter. The pump is just a feeling, but I'm, and I, I don't know if I disagree with any of that, but how much bigger am I going to get if I can get a pump? So it's funny you say that the pump really is a function of metabolic stress. Yeah. Uh, so um, if you get, and that's why it's, it's not clear. So can, can you just try, if you train with, let's say five reps, three, three to five reps, you're not going to get a pump yeah. uh, because there's, very little metabolic stress is very little buildup of metabolites in the muscle and, and uh, basically hyperemia. So your lactic, your lactic acid, the lactate itself tends to draw fluid in uh, because it's, it's what's called an osmolite that draws mm -hmm. fluid into the muscle and it, it's temporary. Uh, there is some evidence that that reactive hyperemia, that uh, flow of blood into the muscle uh, through the metabolic stress uh, initiative, if you will, uh, is a driver of hypertrophy. Is it? We still don't know. But there is some, uh, again, some evidence that it, it could be. And that's why, again, I say that the, some training should be done uh, with higher reps to get that pump. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you basically said earlier in our conversation that the metabolic stress and the muscle damage, they work synergistically kind of to give us what we call muscle growth or hypertrophy. So you kind of do need the pump. You don't need it to get big, but you, you're going to get bigger with it. So th there's some really good research in test tubes that show that what's called cellular hydration. So hydration is, is fluid. Yeah. If you hydrate a cell and that's what the pump is, that's where you're, you're getting fluid within the, in the muscle, yeah. so basically drawing the fluid that uh, goes in the, what's called the interstitial spaces back into the muscle. There's some really great test tube research showing that if you take a cell, and this has been done in uh, so many different, so it's been done in uh, liver cells and kidney cells and, and muscle cells, where if you hydrate the cell, you get an increase in protein synthesis and a decrease in protein breakdown. That is a hypertrophic home run. The yeah. question is, does that translate into what's called in vivo, in the living, you know, in, yeah. in actual practice? And you can't necessarily take... Um, 
what you see in the test tube and then extrapolate that. But it does give you, it gives us a basis by which it very well might, uh, where, where the pump might have benefits. And the theory, I'll give you the, the logical rationale. You could think of it as, uh, let's say you're uh, blowing up a water balloon, where if you blow up a water balloon, if you blow it up too much, the water balloon's gonna explode. Well, the muscle, when it gets that pump, there's pressure against the cell wall and it wants to protect itself. The body, the only thing the body cares about is survival. Mm -hmm. So the, the hypothetical rationale, the, the theoretical rationale is that when you get this pump, the muscle starts to sense a threat to its survival that it's the, uh, the its ultra structure is being challenged yeah. by this pressure coming on it. And it's gonna then produce proteins to reinforce its structure. Okay. So I can go around and tell everybody that you need a pump to get big because you said it, you said it happens in a test tube. So. Well, right. You, you can tell them that it might. That's yeah. I can tell them it might. Okay. Okay. Um, Brad, I could, I could ask you a million questions, um, but I, we've been on for a little while. I want to, I want to give you a chance to say, is there anything you want to say? Is there any myths or anything you want to, any message you want to kind of put out before we end the podcast? I think kind of pulling it full circle back into uh, into what we discussed at the beginning. My, one of my real messages is is that um, we need to come together in, in the fitness field. And uh, there's this theory by some lifters, uh, bodybuilders, that researchers are, are white lab coats who never lift. And there's a theory, uh, and there's uh, this thought by some researchers that uh, all bodybuilders and uh, and strength coaches are meatheads who who don't understand what research has right. really we are synergistic and that if you want to optimize your results uh those who are um bodybuilders and strength coaches need to get an appreciation for research and researchers need to realize that bodybuilders know a thing or two about getting big yeah and that uh, and they have to understand that there's a lot of limitations and unfortunately uh there are researchers that should know this and don't and that by uh coming together as a field we can enhance this effect and ultimately uh, bring the field forward yeah and make bigger stronger individuals i think um if i can just add to that i think it's nice to, I, th I feel like nowadays more bodybuilders are open to listening to science agreed we still i think all of us as a whole still don't you know we don't look at all the studies and say oh we got to do this we still learn from each other in the gym but i think when someone like you comes on and says hey this is how it works. I don't feel like we're as closed off to listening to what you're saying and trying to use it in our own strategy, in our own programs. So I think things are changing. I think it's better. I actually feel like there's more of an argument amongst scientists now than there is amongst bodybuilders and scientists. Cause now you have this guy says keto, this guy says carnivore, this guy says, and now I feel like scientists are fighting, but bodybuilders over here going, okay, we can, we can listen to it all. And I think most of us, most of the guys that I talk to anyway, are appreciative uh, for any added help that we can use to make ourselves better. Yeah. Look, I, I was a, uh, a natty bodybuilder. I was an ectomorph with, you know, not the greatest of genetics and uh, utilizing science. I was able to win my, my class multiple yeah. times as a natty bodybuilder. And I never took it past that. Uh, but that, that has fueled my drive to, uh, understand the science and then uh, hopefully try to educate people on the uh, abilities you can get if you're able to harness that 
and then use your own expertise. So people like you and John Meadows mm -hmm. and some others, uh, it just is really great to see that you not only embrace it, but that you get people like me on and help to yeah. bring that out to the, the masses. Before you go really quickly, what got you into the field? Basically, that was it. I was a skinny kid. I uh, came out of college and I was, uh, you know, real thin, very unhappy with my physique. I found bodybuilding. And then once I got hooked, uh, I decided on a career change. It, uh, it just fueled me. And uh, it, it, first of all, it completely changed my psyche in terms of how I felt about myself. But yeah. once I started getting then into the science and seeing how I can, all right, I, I started trying to use the I'd open up this will date me, but I went back to the time where flex I'd get flex as a subscription yeah. in the mail. Yeah. I'd go and I'd, I'd try to do the uh, workouts of uh, my favorite bodybuilders back then who were like Lee Haney and the Lima mm. Prada. So we're talking yeah. the 90, you know, the yeah. 90s, late eight, late eighties, late eighties, early nineties. Yeah. And, uh, and I plateaued from there. You know, I was basically, I didn't have their genetics or their, their gear <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. and uh, I ultimately had to N equals one and then look in, into research. So the more I then started getting into literature and then keep taking that forward, the more I was able to uh, maximize my own results. So, so you didn't actually study this in school, like in your college the first time? For, no, I actually was a business major. And then I went uh -huh. back to school and got my, my, my master's in exercise science and then my PhD. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, I, I was a business and then I had to take leveling courses, meaning, you know, courses in exercise science and physiology. Yeah. So how get, long? Get my master's. How long did you go to school total? How many years? Uh, well, my college was four years. Uh, master's was two. And then my PhD was three and a half. So a lot of school. Huh. And you wrote a book actually, before you go, I want to, for everybody listening, if you have a minute, go and follow Brad's page. Uh, Brad Schoenfeld, PhD, and you wrote a book called The Max Muscle Plan in Science Development of Muscle Hypertrophy? Correct. Yeah, Max Muscle Plan is a consumer book. Uh, science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy is a textbook. So if you want to really get into the science and you go to the text, that's the textbook. Okay. So what does the textbook do? Is just This is everything you, yeah, all, we, the, all the learning, obviously. It gets really into detail about some of the stuff like the intracellular signaling, muscle damage, metabolic stress. Uh, I uh, shoot me an email. I'll, I'll send you a copy. Okay. What about, you said the other part was, what was the other part? The max muscle plan is max what? muscle plan. Now that's a consumer book. I would say hold off on buying that. Cause I have a, uh, uh, second edition of that coming out at the end of this year. That book is quite dated now. That's 10 years old. So, uh, I think it's being released in November, the new edition of that. Okay. Uh, so g give it a wait. And if you're interested, that's, a, that'll be a really cool book. Okay, Brad, I'm going to put together over the course of a little bit of time, we'll put together a whole bunch of more myths that I keep getting in my DMs and uh, hopefully you'll come back on and we can uh, dispel them. That'd be awesome. Okay, Brad. Thank you very much, man. Have a good day. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Bye-bye.